Okay, uh, I hope those of you who might be interested in the other topic heard that I switched my title on this. Anybody who is more interested in my original title, which had to do with uh, using dictyostelium as a sort of model system for other kinds of multicellular questions, and specifically what stages of development are most conserved evolutionarily, uh, you could talk to me afterwards. Uh, but it seemed from the tenor of earlier discussions and everything that it might be better to focus more on the cooperation and conflict and that kind of thing. And in particular, I thought I'd go back a little bit to um, uh, work up to multicellularity, but go back a little bit to Jones and my history as social insect biologist, because that's where a lot of this thinking came from. Um, as Joan alluded to in her talk, I, I, I like to think of uh, social behavior at, uh, in terms of the slogan of the French uh, Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. Uh, the libertarians are the normal Darwinian uh, interactors that are competing most of the time with other individuals and not cooperating. And then the egalitarians and fraternitarians, <laughs> fraternity brothers, <laughs> uh, uh, constitute different kinds of cooperation, which really differ fundamentally in a number of uh, uh, important ways. And I'm not going to go through the whole list, but it's essentially a difference between uh, uh, within species like type cooperation based on kin selection for the fraternal uh, transitions and often between species cooperation between unlike types for the egalitarian uh, uh, transitions. And it's egalitarian only in a loose sense. Uh, they don't have to reproduce equally, but these kinds of cooperative entities do have, have to have both of the kinds of partners reproducing because uh, they uh, bring different things to the table. In this talk, I'm going to focus completely on the fraternal major transitions. And, and, and fraternal bits are important at many of the levels, but the most important ones are in the evolution of multicellularity, cellularity, I hate that word, and uh, the evolution of insect societies. So I'm going to start uh, with social insects. Uh, and there, there are many ways, as you know, to think about and to model social evolution, and this is probably an incomplete list running from inclusive fitness uh, down to population genetics and quantitative genetics. Um, for many problems, I prefer inclusive fitness because of its simplicity, and that's the way I'm going to start out today. Uh, later on, when I get to some issues of multicellularity, which involve mutation rates and so forth, I'm going to skip to a sort of po a more explicitly population genetic framework, uh, partly to incorporate that mutation. Hey, hey, can I just ask, since lots of words uh, here, do the first five or six of these just strongly overlap? Sort of a oh, I think they all overlap. They're all tools that can address social evolution in, in slightly different ways, yes. As do the last two. Yeah. And fundamentally, all, all of them are based ultimately on population genetics or quantitative genetics. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick derivation of Hamilton's rule to spare you the trouble of reading Hamilton's paper, which is, which is a bit of a pain. Um, and it, it starts, however, from an intermediate point that some of you are aware of, Price's equation, which says, describes the rate of change in the breeding value of a trait or, or, or some other quantity. Uh, for our purposes at this point, we can just define G as the number of alleles for the cooperative behavior that this individual has. If it's a haploid, G would either be 0 or 1. If it's a diploid, either 0, 1 half for a heterozygote or 1 for a homozygous cooperative, cooperator. And it describes, it, the, 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 the essence of it is that uh, alleles increase in evolution if they co-vary positively with fitness, which is not a hard thing to understand intuitively, but Price proved it. So you can take that equation and 
ask, and put it in social framework and predict fitness with a regression equation, predicting fitness based on your own breeding value, your own possession of cooperation genes or whatever the social gene is, and your partner's uh, value for their cooperation genes, uh, where prime designates the partner. So you've got a, you know, an intercept to regression, partial regression coefficients and a residual, pop that into Price's equation here, it splits into four. Uh, four terms, one for each of the term of the regression equation. Uh, this one goes away because it's a covariance with a constant, the intercept. This one goes away in this case because the residual of a regression equation is always uncorrelated uh, if, if one of the predictors is uh, uh, g there. And so you're left with these two terms. And conventionally inclusive fitness theory, that's a kin selection result, but often we go a step farther and ask when is delta G greater than zero? And when you do that here, you end up with this equation, the two partial regression coefficients appearing here, and this regression is this covariance divided by that covariance. And that's Hamilton's rule, that's a kin selection result right there. <coughs> um, we didn't have to make any special assumptions for it. Uh, and it's useful for certain purposes and not for other purposes. Uh, so for example, if we're talking about the evolution of altruism, Hamilton's rule covers all kinds of interactions uh, uh, towards others. But if we're talking about altruism, the effect of your own genes on your own fitness would be negative. That's the cost. The effect of uh, the way it's expressed here in this neighbor modulated fitness result, the effect of your neighbor's genes on your fitness uh, would be positive if they're an altruist and you multiply that by relatedness, which is this genetic regression here. Yes? Um, in, in this last, before you go to benefits and costs, uh, the beta GG prime, which gives the relatedness, uh, so it seems that the other terms for, for non-additive, non-linear, not very simple kind of fitness, it seems that the other two terms, uh, which you call benefit and cost, also depend on the relatedness. So it's they can, in, they can in some cases. Um, this result is is correct either way. There are no assumptions in there. It may not be the most useful way of doing things when, uh, particularly when fitnesses are strongly non-additive. I think that's what you're. Yeah. Doing. So, so it, it's not something of the form where I would say, well, if I keep benefits fixed and then I vary cost or I vary relatedness, this is what I expect. It doesn't give me that kind of separability of I get what I would call a benefit depends now on the composition of the population. Sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't so much. So what is yeah. non-linear, non-added? Yeah, yeah. But so, I'm sorry, just because this is the question I had earlier. Um, if you do something like the calculation that you did for synergistic effects, so when you have a matrix where the diagonal and the off-diagonal don't have the same sum, um, what happens is that if I do, if I calculate the benefits and costs, with this formula they depend on the composition of the population. Yes. So if I start with some with an action where I actually give one dollar for or I pay one dollar for somebody else to get two dollars, with this definition, when I when I turn it into actual benefits and costs that, that, that go into the definition, I find that my what seems like a cooperative behavior actually depends on the rest of the population. So if I'm surrounded by a lot of defectors, the benefit will it will look like I'm uh, if I'm surrounded by a lot of cooperators, it will look like I'm cooperating, but if I'm surrounded by a lot of defectors, it will look like I'm defecting. So because the benefits and costs in this formula start to depend on the composition of the population, the, what we call cooperation and defection change with the, with the composition of the population. 
I think when there are these non-linear non, non kinds of effects, you're saying, yeah. Which, which is a lot of. They, they are common, but sometimes they're small. And, and uh, uh, in social insects, for example, it's often true that one individual is giving you know, a, something to its mother, and there's not a question of the mother giving something back. Um, I, I think it's applicable to many situations, and in others, you might want to take a different approach. Let's go on with this and see where it goes. Price did a group selection, uh, between and group selection decomposition, similar kind of thing. This is a slightly different decomposition. Is there a small parameter where I could say the nonlinearity is small, like we would do in physics? Um, you, can, you can do it that way if you add those in. Incidentally, the within group and between group partition suffers from the same kinds of issues as, as this does, exactly the same. And does uh, the selection pressure play a role? Is it valid for any type of selection? Or maybe uh, you mean the intensity of selection or what? Uh, I think it is, but for example, if selection pressure is very strong, that can distort relatedness coefficients away from what they would be from a straightforward pedigree and so forth. So you have to be careful about those kinds of issues. It's always, it's always best under weak selection and, non, and additive effects. Isn't it also the fact that this is a the statement uh, is uh, true, but uh, also not quite the whole story in the sense of uh, you know, Fisher's fundamental theorem right, relates uh, the rate of adaptation, rate of increase of uh, average fitness to the variance, which is certainly true, but it doesn't really determine what the variance is. And there's a whole song and dance of figuring exactly what the variance is and the all the factors that determine it. And so similarly here, this relates uh, like the rate of change to the covariance. But covariance, as was just noted, depends on the population has to be calculated and itself has evolutionary dynamics. Or well, population dynamics even before evolutionary dynamics. Uh, yeah, but let me show you some, some examples from uh, social insects where I think those kinds of things maybe aren't so important. The relatedness, for example, gets determined by the the fairly straightforward dispersal structure and mating structure of the population. Oops, had some animations there. So there are a couple other steps that are taken beyond this strictly genetic result sometimes to actually get an, an inclusive fitness result that field workers use. Uh, the first is that uh, you switch to an actor's perspective. So the, the perspective that was taken in the previous model is sort of a standard one where your fitness is your fitness and it's not shared with somebody else. It's not yet an inclusive fitness model. And what this rearrangement does, if you look at it, you can just see the G's and the, G and the primes are switched in a couple places, is that instead of attributing uh, an individual's reproduction all to its own fitness, Instead, you give it the bit that it would have had in the absence of the social behavior and add whatever it did to somebody else, a relative, and multiply by R. And you don't count this little bit of its own reproduction because that came, that belongs to the inclusive fitness of this guy. It basically amounts to a reordering of some of the summation terms uh, in the equation. And then finally, to actually use this in the field almost all the time, this is Less and less true with microbial systems, but uh, traditionally, we don't know what the genes are underlying the behaviors of interest, and you have to go to a phenotypic type gambit. And so instead of using uh, uh, your, your genes and your partner's genes to predict the behavior, you're using uh, your uh, phenotype and your partner's phenotype. 
so that's that's the version that people tend to use in the field, and it's going to have inexactnesses, particularly under non-additive, uh, strongly non-additive situations, or where where selection is extremely strong. Yes. How my action affects both my fitness and how it affects your fitness, and we sum those things together in, in calculating inclusive fitness. And that's independent of whether or not um, my fitness is impacted by yours because of heredity. So you don't need heredity here. Is that right? In essence, relatedness measures. It's it's a ratio of heritabilities, really. When I perform a behavior, how heritable is that behavior through my own reproduction compared to how heritable is it through the other guy that I affected? there's some probability that they'll share the same genes. So, so it does involve heritability. Um, lost my train of thought there, but let's go ahead with social insects. I want to show you some of the, the ways this has been applied to social insects, and, and some of it will come out of Jones and my work and, and much of it from other people's work. I just wanted to give you a flavor of, of the kinds of things that have been done. So, so doing this phenotypic gambit, Paying attention to phenotypes instead of genes is what allows us to do comparative biology, to take a, a, a good rule of thumb like that and apply it to the real world and try to ask, why does this organism do it this way and why does this one do it that way? And Hamilton's rule in the simplest form predicts that it should depend on differences uh, in costs, benefits, and relatedness. So uh, here's something that may be familiar to some of you. Uh, an extreme altruistic act by a worker honeybee who has just stung this guy. This is an amazing picture I just recently found on the web. And it's amazing because it, some of you may know that this, the worker leaves the sting embedded in the attacker, in a bear who's attacking the hive or something like that, or in the human. And in the process, it, it sticks in there because of these strong barbs on the sting. And as she flies away or is swatted away, she gets disemboweled, essentially. So that stinging a vertebrate intruder uh, is going to kill the worker. And she nevertheless does it. And in fact, she specifically evolved to do it. You don't have to have these barbs on your sting. Those evolved for uh, a reason. They're, they're there to attach the sting there. And when the sting's stuck and the worker's long gone, the poison stack is, uh, sack is still attached and contracting, uh, even though the bee is no longer there. Is this also true for wasps? Most wasps don't. Uh, detach their sting like that. There are a few ants that do it, maybe a few wasps, I don't remember. Wasps with barbed stings that, some, yeah, they do. that sometimes come out. I don't, know, I don't know if they still have the poison sack and that kind of business. They die all they sacrifice the I'm not sure it's known. Some of the Anyway, this kind of behavior is in, although nobody's ever measured the costs and benefits here, the cost is giving up your life, that's straightforward. Uh, nobody's ever measured the benefit precisely, but it's easy to see that a few workers stinging a bear who's attacking the colony may save many of their relatives' lives, uh, since the colony is a group of relatives. Uh, essentially, B is very much larger than C, so relatedness doesn't have to be very high for this to be favored. These workers are diploid organisms? Yes, I'll come to that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but. explanation of why a mutation that would not have disemboweled the bees is not fixated? The hypothetical reason, the reason I think is true, that if you had the mutation that gave you a smooth sting that didn't do that, your sting would be less effective. No, the one, they could grow back. Oh, I assume that must be lack of the appropriate variations, but that's 
structure of pure speculation. It's a complex structure. Uh, sort of the flip side of this, coming from the very same species, uh, here are honeybee queens doing something else. These are two queens who have just hatched out of their, their natal colony, and what they're doing is engaging in a lethal fight using their stings, the very same organ, uh, to try to kill each other. And one of them eventually succeeds at killing the other, and she becomes the queen of the colony. Um, so in contrast to the extreme altruism on the other slide, we have extreme selfishness on this slide, but also easy enough to understand because what happens in the colony bee, uh, honeybee colony cycle is that when it's time to reproduce the colony, the mother queen flies off, and this is kind of weird, with maybe two-thirds of the workers leaving the colony to a daughter queen, but usually there are two or three or four queen cells in there, two or three or four queens hatch out, and if you consider the inclusive fitness calculus from either one's point of view, each one is related by one to herself and by one quarter to her sister. Uh, any gene that says kill your sister is, is uh, on its way to success. The one quarter is because in honeybees the queen mates many times. Which? Oh, you mean why doesn't she die because of stinging? Because the queen sting doesn't detach. It's morphologically different. It may have tiny, tiny barbs, but much smaller, and it doesn't come out. Um, it may also be true that if workers stung an insect, it wouldn't come out. It may, may be partly that difference, too. But it's morphologically different. They've evolved in different ways. And that's right, good question. There is the risk, of course, that they will sting each other at the same time, and they will both die in the colony. Yeah, if she's still around. <laughs> if, they, if the last two kill each other, uh, it's bad. Because the loser is not trying to be altruistic. The loser is trying to kill her sister. <laughs> I think you can intuit it pretty well in this case. It's a difficult thing when you're working with microbes to intuit it. But these guys are fighting. This, if you wanted to be a loser, all you have to do is fly away. Leave the colony to the queen. You don't have to fight her and risk killing both of them. Does that happen? Do queens fly? Not that I know of. Never heard of it. Wouldn't that be better for the inclusive fitness? For a queen, if you knew you were going to be a loser, it would be better to fly away and not risk killing, harming your sister. If you have a chance of taking over the colony, that's what's best for your inclusive fitness. Coming back, what? <laughs> what about just flying getting back with all the other queens just uh, or queens to be just killed? There might be a strategy in trying to avoid the conflict until you're the, the last pair, yeah. I, and I don't know if that goes on or not. My difficulty in understanding this kind of explanation is that it seems an inclusive fitness explanation explains what happens with the, with the wasps that kill their sisters and also with the ants where the queens fly away and start new colonies and also with other wasps that do other kinds of behavior because there's a huge variety. So I'm just trying to, it seems like... You have to know the biology of the particular situation. You have to know what constraints are there and so forth. So honey, honey bee queens do not have any other option. They cannot found colonies on their own. Uh, you hatch out there, you've got two choices. You can try to become the queen uh, through the route of killing your sister, or you can try not to become the queen, in which case you don't reproduce at all. Uh, ants. Uh, are able to find, most ants are able to found colonies on their own, so that's a difference in the biology. And how you got to that stage is, of course, an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay. <laughs> Well, the queen has gone. The queen has gone off to start a new colony, carrying most of the workers with her, and so this is. But she's going with workers. Okay, so, so it could be that the workers could decide to divide between these two, and that that occasionally happens. If there's enough workers left, they may go off with the secondary swarm with one of the queens and leave the other one. Um, but usually, there's not enough for that. It's, it's sort of an optimization problem for the workers as well, well, for, the, for natural selection. What about the genetics of the situation? Um, as you mentioned, the workers here are diploid, so I'm showing two, two genes at each locus here, and the genes are kind of color-coded. And they're diploid because they're descended from a mother and a father, and I've color-coded their genes. But what's funny about this system, as many of you know, is that it's not really diploidy, it's haplodiploidy, and the males are haploid in this system. So what happens is that uh, a male will mate with a female, she will store the sperm, the male is gone after that. And if she chooses to fertilize an egg as it passes out from her, it is diploid and becomes a female. If she chooses not to fertilize that egg, it is haploid and becomes a male. And Hamilton noticed in the very first, well, second paper, I guess, uh, on this topic that uh, sort of conjunction of things. One is that most social insects are haplodiploid. The ants, bees, and wasps are all haplodiploid. Termites not. Termites are regular diploids. Um, and the other thing he noticed is that haplodiploidy leads to some weird relatednesses, and specifically this one. Uh, female, the workers are always female, is related to her sisters, assuming the mother is mated once, by three quarters instead of the usual one half that would apply in a diploid system. And that's because everybody's getting the same uh, complement from the father. He can't go through a reduction division. He's only got one set of genes to start with, and so they all get those genes. So they're kind of normal, related to the normal degree through the mother, but to a super degree through the father. And so Hamilton thought, well, maybe workers stick around in the colony in haplodiploids because they can rear sisters related by three quarters instead of their own daughters related by one half. Great idea. And, and it seems to explain a lot about social insects. Uh, why so many origins of sociality in the haplodiploid social insects, something like 10 to 15 separate origins compared to one, maybe two in the termites. Why in haplodiploids the females are always workers? Because males don't have this special relatedness advantage to their sisters or brothers. And why uh, in many social insects workers are sterile, they don't reproduce at all, but in, in many they can and sometimes do reproduce a bit, and it's always male offspring that they reproduce. You should be happy to raise your mother's uh, daughters because you're highly related to them. You're less happy, I didn't show the relatednesses, but you're less happy to raise your mother's sons and you'd rather rear your own. Yeah? Are you only talking about insects of the origins of sociality? You don't mean Currently I am, yeah. Like you could talk. There are some other cases and lots and lots of vertebrates that have, you know, sort of partial systems that aren't as advanced, yeah. The naked mole rats are not haplodiploid. That's right. They're diploid and also highly inbred, which has some... But uh, that's what I wanted to point out. That if you include those, you get almost as many origins both. So that's right. That's right. Haplodiploidy goes all the way back in, in the Hymenoptera, and sociality has evolved within the Hymenoptera multiple times. So, yeah. And there's some other groups that are haplodiploid as well, but not as big as the, as the Hymenoptera. Mm -hmm. 
males come uh, come from where? So males also if the queen lays an egg but does not fertilize it. And workers, in some species, workers can do that as well. They can lay an egg but not fertilize it and it becomes a queen. And how does the queen determine the ratio of fertilized and uh, that gets into some interesting questions. In approximate sense, I'm not sure when she decides to do that or, or not, but they're interesting evolutionary questions because it turns out queens and workers disagree about how many males and females should be produced. And I'll say a little bit about that, a little bit about that later. Anyway, you, so, so you can go out and collect uh, uh, individuals from social insect nests and bring them back and find genetic markers in them and estimate relatedness. And just, this is just an example from some of our early work on uh, a dozen species of stingless bees, which are a closely related group to honeybees, uh, where we estimated relatedness among female colony mates with genetic markers, and you can see they, they all, all, with this one exception, they're all their 95% confidence intervals uh, fall at that three-quarters level, and that's because these things have a colony structure in which they have a single queen who mated to a single male. Can I start the, the relatedness we talked about yesterday was relative to some bigger population and rather crucially depended on what the that population was. Well, it isn't very crucially dependent because, because of the way these guys disperse. So colony produces reproductives, male and female. They fly away a considerable distance, mate with others more or less at random. And so whatever larger population you sample, it doesn't change the background very much. But if they fly away and get blown by the wind 100 kilometers away versus landing 100 meters away, that changes if you're competing very closely with your relatives next door, that can change it, yes. In the, in the extreme case of what you're talking about. But if I, I'm going to suggest that the but relatedness but, but, among the ones in the lab, the Dictys, was much lower than the relatedness of ones in the field, even though they were much more closely related. Not following. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not following what you're saying, even. Well, I guess I'm trying to just understand the normal system. If you grow them up in a lab from a single clone, Mm -hmm. very closely if I have things in the in the wild, they are some of them may be closely related, some of them may be very far apart, right, ten thousand years apart. And but if I understood it, that the the relatedness of the ones in the lab in the way it was normalized was lower than the ones from the field, or am I the relatedness that was important for the evolution of a new mutation that occurred in the lab was lower there, even though he started from a single clone because everything was well mixed, relative to your population of competitors in the lab, relatedness was very low. Because your neighbor was no more. This is not normalized at all. Well, it is normalized because you've collected a bunch of colonies, let's say, in this species from around a, a largish area, and you're asking how similar are, are, are individuals within a colony relative to the genetic variation in the population. It depends on the area you sample from. But it does, but it, but it turns out. Understanding of the dynamics, spatial temporal dynamics, that means you think you've got it the, the right. Yes, but right because of the way they disperse and mate randomly. If you had a structure where each colony budded and gave rise to a colony next door, that's going to be more, a, a little bit more complicated. But are there actually cases where people have really followed which the founders of the colonies and the ancestries to check on this? Um, well, this does in a sense, right? We predict a 7-5 relatedness if the population is outbred and if they're dispersing widely, and that's what we get. Well, I guess I don't mean that. I mean, look at the, the queens. Actually following the queens moving? And actually either say, OK, this queen founded that one. We know because we followed the queen. Or Hard we know it do. because of the Jane Goodall. 
But that's been, been done with ants, right? I mean, Deborah Gordon did that with a whole. No, no. No, she doesn't. She doesn't know where her ants came from exactly. No. Her ants have huge they're, mating swarms. They're this big. You can't you can't follow them through a mating swarm and back to where they're. She follows them from when they start a colony, but then when they produce reproductives, they fly off. There's now the genetic things that this. Um, much more information. It could be possible if you have enough genetic markers right. to to say that this queen over here came right. from the colony over here. That's right. So yeah. I think that she has that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've had that information for the wasps. I think what you're confusing is when I talked about an experimental evolution project we did specifically designed to drop relatedness of new mutations to zero in the lab. That is not the standard thing in the lab. That was one specific experiment explicitly designed to bring the relatedness of new mutations down to zero. No, I, I, do, I think I understand that, but the, the it still it seems in doing this analysis, there are somewhat, perhaps seem, some of us quite strong assumptions about that one knows how to sample, Yeah, well, so they know a little bit about honeybees, for example. The queen flies off and she finds a new colony and you don't know where the hell it is. She didn't come back close. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're going so far. It's 10 kilometers or 100 meters. Yeah, yeah. But, but if you measure the, the population variation over 10 kilometers or 100 meters, it doesn't change that much at that scale. So your reference population, in certain cases, it doesn't matter too much what you choose. So they're going a long way. Yeah, yeah. But, but we have done lots of work where we've marked females on one nest and then followed them to the subsequent year and That's right, yeah. where they nest. In Polistes, yeah. Like yeah, so they move around the field. It, really well. We don't know if they're going, we don't know if some are going 10 kilometers, but we know something about the scale, yeah. Okay. I'm missing a slide. I was going to talk about uh, problems with the haplodiploid hypothesis. It really seemed to explain a lot, and people were really happy about it. And uh, uh, but fairly quickly, people started pointing out some issues with it. One is that, despite the results I just showed you for stingless bees, where relatedness was three quarters, you look at some groups and relatedness sometimes lower. So these are the polystene wasps, the paper wasps that Joan and I studied for many years. This is an even earlier study. Uh, and here's the 0.75 line again. Some of them are up, up there, but a lot of them are down, you know, some as low as 0.3 or so. In this case, it's because they sometimes have multiple queens in a colony, multiple females laying eggs. Is there any interesting phylogenetic relationship between the relatedness and the species? I'm not sure we've ever quite mapped it, but I'll show you a phylogenetic, a larger scale phylogenetic relationship later, but within this group, I uh, don't think I have. But there, yeah, we have for, for this set? There's three or four subfamilies, subgenera there, and... Uh, How does relatedness sort out in them? I'm not, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, it doesn't, I mean, the, the... So this group compared to their sort of sister group, the epiponine wasps, the epiponine wasps consistently have low relatedness. These ones often have higher relatedness. And it's because of their colony structure, epiponine wasps are multiple queen, have multiple queen colonies. Another issue, there was actually a theoretical problem with Hamilton's original formulation of the model, too. I didn't show you the males before. If, the, if a mother does not inseminate an egg, she gets uh, a male like this or a male like this at a given locus. And if you calculate the workers' relatedness to brothers, it's one quarter instead of the usual one half. And so, yeah, they get an advantage through rearing sisters because they're related by three quarters. But if they have to rear a 50-50 mix of these two guys, they're getting one half, which is exactly their relatedness to their own offspring. 
no special advantage there if that applies. Now, there might be a special advantage if workers can rear more of these, and there's been a lot of work in that area, but it's an issue. Finally, there are possible alternative explanations for the... These assumes, of course, that cost and benefits uh, of the interaction between workers and sisters, sisters and workers and brothers, etc. is the same. I think that was the motivation behind Hamilton's original idea. I mean, in, in the formula, R can vary, B can vary, and C can vary. And he came up with this explanation where maybe R was the important thing. Variation in R was the important thing. There um, was a, a time scale chart. It was one looking at the short-term benefits or the long-term benefits. Long-term in what sense? Well, that if I look down through um, you know, a thousand generations of the queens, I can tell one is then looking at the whole bigger, um, bigger population and which things are benefits for short-term? Well, we're talking about short-term. We're talking about what, how selection acts in this generation, then it acts again in that generation, acts again in that generation, and so on. That's the scale we're working at. I'm, I'm not sure what's the beginning. As far as using arguments like what well, we see multiple examples of this type and a few examples of that, then one is talking about the much longer-term success, right? So it's... it's uh, You're talking about the origin of those particular things, yeah. Well, in which, one, different you know, which one persisted? Can I use, is it valid to use the argument that oh, I see this 100, 100 like this and one like that, and connect that to the short-term, the short-term... Uh, it's a hypothesis, yeah. yeah. It may or may not be valid depending on the biology, yeah. And in this case, I think it's, there are other explanations as I'm getting to. Um, so Hamilton said there were more origins of sociality in haplodiploids than diploids, and and claim that was due to relatedness. On the other hand, it's also true that the haplodiploid hymenoptera have most of the cases of parental care in insects. Uh, a very large number of, of taxa do parental care. And that's the most natural pre-adaptation for moving on to what's effectively alloparental care, caring for somebody else's offspring. So if you've already got parental care, the only switch that's really required is a gene which causes you to do <laughs> what you would normally do, but do it for somebody else's offspring. And so perhaps hymenoptera were just nicely pre-adapted for this. Uh, only females are, wor are workers in diploids. Well, it's kind of the same explanation here, because in the other hymenoptera, the non-social ones that provide parental care, it's always the female that provides parental care, for whatever reason. Uh, there is a reason, and so it's the, the most natural move into going, uh, into going social is for those females who are already pre-adapted for parental care. For example, they have a sting. Uh, move and shift that parental care over to the offspring of somebody else. And finally, uh, workers, when they do reproduce, produce male offspring only, in order, Hamilton said, in order to avoid displacing those three-quarters related to sisters. But on the other hand, workers can produce males without mating. That's how males are produced. So that's, in almost every colony, workers are not mated. Sometimes they can't mate. They've lost the spermatheca. Uh, and, and so there's another possible explanation for that. I don't know what the final answer is. Um, so, so males, me, males are mostly produced by the workers, not by the queen? Depends on the colony. I'll say a little bit more about that. In some species, the workers are absolutely sterile. They've lost their ovaries. You know, they've evolved to that degree. In others, they are perfectly fertile, but don't reproduce very much. In a few species, workers reproduce significantly, but always males. So I'm not quite sure what to say about the haplodiploid hypothesis. Certainly we're not as enthusiastic about it as people were in the people who knew about it in 1970. Um, but it means some, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, the 
Floyd hypothesis is a specific prediction from kin selection theory if you think that relatedness difference is the key thing. So it requires kin selection theory, uh, but kin selection theory, of course, does not require the haplodiploid hypothesis. Uh, why don't worker wasps get mated? Why can't they just go? I never understood with the ants, they're down, they don't have wings anymore, they can't fly, but the wasps, what prevents the workers from just flying and mating? In some wasps, there are no males produced at that time of the season. In some, it may be morphological. Over evolutionary time, this kind of begs the question, but over evolutionary time, they've lost organs that are necessary for mating, uh, ovaries, for example. Uh, in others, they have the ability to mate, but don't do it. One reason may be that the queen's going to beat up on them if they do it, if she, if she can detect, uh, uh, detect it. And some they do mate. And in a few they do mate, but often don't reproduce much unless the queen disappears. What was the original thinking on this? So, I mean, there's The social system or the mating system? What do you mean by the ancestors had haplodiploidy yeah. for other reasons? Yeah. Not the mating. So the social system. Whether you stay in. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, so Hamilton was trying to get an explanation based on variation relatedness. Three quarters higher, is higher than one half. But of course, you can satisfy Hamilton's rule, even if the relatednesses aren't different, if the benefits are sufficiently higher than the cost. We already saw that with the honeybees, where you, know, you can sting and save your colony. And even though those are only half sisters, in, in, the, in the case of honeybees, that can easily pay. Difficult. There are ways to try to tease it out. But measuring fitness is hard in general in populations. Measuring components of fitness, that much harder. Um, I'm not going to show you any of those studies, but there are some. Well, so I guess what I'm getting at is it just I don't know. That's not a question I've thought about, but, but well, why is it a question for you? Do you think they should get rid of haplodiploidy? I haven't gotten um, that far yet. I'm yeah, okay. wondering if this is just an absolute constraint. So the original wasps uh, are parasitic, um, they're, they're, um, they're not, I mean, so there's other pre-adaptations to sociality having to do with not keeping all your larvae and stuff and fouling the colony. Having a sting. Um, yeah, having a sting and those sorts of things. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty fixed genetic trait in, in these guys. It's not something that's, that's plastic. So, so one of the things we ought to be studying a lot more are what are the features of benefits and costs that then favor uh, sociality. And people are doing that. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about relatedness, because that's the kind of special feature of, of kin selection that gets people excited. And here's analysis done by Hughes et al. a few years ago, which took all the data we had on social insects and whether the queens were singly mated or multiply mated. And here's the phylogeny of all these things, 200-some species. The black lines are singly mated. The uh, red ones are multiply mated, where honeybees are one example of multiply mated ones. 
And you can do character mapping the way phylogeneticists do uh, once, once you have your <coughs> phylogenetic tree. And what you see is these cases of multiple mating are not only in the minority, but they always trace back to singly mated social ancestors. So as far as we can tell from this data, even though there were multiple origins of sociality represented by these different colored bands along the, the tree, ants being the last one, uh, at each of those origins of sociality, it looks like the queens were singly mated. That relatedness was high at the origin. That's when you need it most. Because after you've evolved for a very long time in a social situation, you've evolved lots of uh, uh, division of labor and synergistic costs and benefits, you might be able to tolerate a lower relatedness. It's highly variable. It would be better if this tree had all the hymenoptera that are non-social as well, but mostly those data are not available. People haven't done those studies yet. So people have learned whether these queens are multiply mated or not in the course of doing studies about relatedness in social insects. We just haven't learned that for the, for the solitary things that would be intercalated in here. That would be, it'd be great to see that. So we don't really know if, for instance, all of the solitary insects were actually singly mated. Well, there are lots of soli solitary insects who are multiply mated, but it could be, it, you're right, it could be that in these ones, they were singly mated as well. But it still shows that it, that was ancestral uh, in all these cases. Um, a high relatedness of social insects isn't just incidental. A colony is founded by a single queen, perhaps, but there is the potential for colonies to mix and fuse. And as a rule, they don't. They have, uh, most social insects have highly developed kin recognition or colony mate recognition mechanisms. And if an ant from a foreign colony wanders into your colony, uh, you end up with a fight and often a fight to the death. So they, they care about relatedness in a sense, to the extent ants care about anything. Coming back to the sex ratio question, uh, we pointed out earlier that female workers are more three times more related to their sisters than they are to their brothers. If you incorporate this into the sort of standard Fisher's uh, sex ratio argument, which was originally for diploids, uh, it turns out that it predicts an equilibrial sex ratio if workers could control who gets invested in here of three times as much investment in sisters than in brothers. That's where it exactly balances out. Mothers are equally related to their sons and daughters, and therefore the equilibrial sex ratio for them is the standard one of one to one. And so this is our early encounter with the potential for conflict between queens and workers, even in colonies where the workers are now completely sterile. Even if workers are laying no eggs, they still disagree about with the queen about whether she should produce uh, males or females. And there's been a lot of work done in this. I'm just going to show you one example. The best work tends to have come from studies of species that show variation in relatedness patterns, where some colonies are singly mated, single queens, and other colonies are maybe doubly or triply mated. So in the singly mated colonies, you have this three to one asymmetry. You predict a three to one sex ratio of favoring females. And in the other colonies, uh, uh, much less so, and they should produce the males. And that's what you see over and over again in studies like this. So we have proportion of investment in females in this colony and number of, uh, on this axis and number of colonies on this one where the white bars are singly mated and the dark bars multiply mated ones. So same species, if you are singly mated, you're producing mostly females, as predicted, because the workers are closely related, three quarters related to the uh, females, 
in the other colonies that are multiply mated, they're left to produce the males. They still have other things equal, they still have a, something of a preference for females because they have some full sisters in there, but these guys have a much stronger preference and when they produce females, that provides a frequency dependent advantage for producing, <coughs> for producing males. Now there's the issue of, and this gets us into the origin of the, uh, the issue with policing. <coughs> Who should produce the males in the first place? So you prefer the queen to produce sisters over brothers, but what about, you know, if you, if you haven't lost your ovaries yet, uh, you have the option of producing sons of your own to whom you're related by one half, and you're related to your brothers only by one quarter. So if you could replace a brother with a son, that's something that you would gain from. Get twice as many genes. So, why don't workers always do that? Turns out they do do it sometimes. In some species, however, they almost never do it, even though they are able to, and that's because of policing by other workers. Sometimes by the queen, but often by other workers. So in honeybees, it's quite rare for a, fee for a worker to try to lay an egg, but it happens once in a while, and if she does, another worker goes in there, sniffs, somehow sniffs it out that this came from a worker, and eats the egg, uh, takes it away. And this is a comparative study of a, a number of social insects where they looked at the effectiveness of policing what proportion of the eggs that were laid by workers actually get snuffed out by other workers. So honeybees are, uh, where are they? Down here, where uh, policing is highly effective. Almost all of the eggs, 98% of the eggs laid by workers get eaten by other workers. Some other species are like that too. And in all those species, other workers don't bother to lay very many eggs. Why do it? Because they're just gonna get eaten anyway, right? In species where policing is less effective, then you have a higher percentage of workers who are developing their ovaries and try to, trying to lay eggs. So this is a, a fairly neat example of one of these uh, conflicts that needs to be controlled, and it's controlled much better in some species than in others. One reason for that gets back to relatedness again. It depends upon the mating structure of the colony and the relatedness structure of the colony. So here's a singly mated colony, mother, father, workers, brothers, sisters. Uh, and now the question is, I asked before whether a worker should prefer to lay her own sons, but what if you're the worker and one of your sisters lays an egg? Are you gonna favor that? Are you gonna eat that egg or let it be? And that depends upon whether you would prefer the uh, males to come from the queen, to whom you're related by one quarter, or to nephews who are related by three-eighths. So in a singly mated colony, other things being equal, you'd prefer nephews and you wouldn't eat the, those eggs. Other things may not be perfectly equal, but contrast that to this situation in a multiply mated colony, mother, father, bunch of other mates, uh, a worker who comes from this mother and this father, still related to her brothers by one quarter, but now she's related to her sisters by less because many of them come from other males and therefore she's related to her nephews, most of them by only one eighth. She's less related to her sister's sons than to the mother's sons. She should eat these guys, other things being equal. So, so what you're predicting is that policing is related to multiple mating? Yes, that it changes the, it changes the related to structure in, multiple mating changes the related to structure in favor of eating your sister's eggs. Honeybees, they see, is it, the, the queen is multiply mated or? Yes. Yeah, honeybee. The one, the, the, the one in the lower? 
They were one of the ones in the lower right corner, yeah. Um, I don't know if all of them are, but let me, I'll show you some data on this, I think. So this doesn't show single mating, it shows relatedness among workers, which is a function of multiple mating. Singly mated things would be out here, multiply mated thing, things down here, and yes, so, so this answers your question. When relatedness is high among workers, uh, it, well, I should give you this axis here, percent of, of uh, reproductive workers in the colony, the percent of workers who have developed ovaries and may be trying to lay eggs. So if relatedness is high, you have a, a uh, rather high percentage of reproductive workers. Am I got that right? No, apis is down here. If, if there's lots of multiple mating, and therefore you're less related to your nephews, uh, there's strong policing, and they eat the eggs, and you get very few reproductive workers. Up here, where relatedness is high because there's a single female queen, you may prefer the, the two slides ago, prefer the offspring of your sisters to those of the queen, and therefore more workers are allowed to become reproductive. Now, why they all don't become reproductive, uh, you know, good question, but there are colony, colony efficiency questions and so forth, too. Is there, um, this is always a comparison between species. This is, yeah. Is there a species that has single and multiple mating so you can compare within the same species? There are, because they've done those tests like I just showed you with sex ratios. Have I ever seen one that's a policing study? Because it would be important. Yeah, that, that would be interesting to look at. I'm, don't know. That's a good thing to look at, yeah. I don't think so. If the number, if your number of if your reproductive fraction gets to one towards one, then there's no difference between the worker and the queen. Except in this case, they aren't mated, so they're not producing daughters, right? Are you going to get back to the origin of this? But so far, you've said nothing about the origin of this. I don't think I'm going to say a lot about it, but I. What is, it, what is it you'd like to know? And the, the origin is not hard to envision given that there are sort of any benefits, any significant benefits that a worker could provide. A single, a single daughter stays with her mother and that can provide advantages like allowing one of them to forage while, while one of them stays to guard the eggs. That's one, one sort of advantage. Um, and, the, and the queen who's already reproductive prefers to be reproductive and beats up on the worker so she doesn't reproduce. That's one, one question would be why there are so few origins, or is there a predictive ability to say when we might expect another eusocial insect? Yeah, well, is evolution predictive? That's, that's tough. Um, why there are so few? Well, one, one prediction you would make, for example, is the, is the counter-argument that came out against the haplodiploid hypothesis. If you thought of this first, you'd see more uh, evolution of of, of insect sociality in, in, in lineages that already had parental care, for example. That's a pre-adaptation for it. Or Eel Wilson talks about having a nest, similar, similar sort of thing. Yeah. Dave, I think it's uh, th this particular figure right here, uh, it's important to, uh, to look at it in the way that it's not really presented, which is you know, basically the, the y-axis is cheating. I mean, something you can call cheating or you can call altruism if you're going downward. So the, 
being low on it is more quote-unquote altruism. So if you did... Non-cooperation up this way. Right. So if you did a kind of naive um, application of inclusive fitness without particular attention to the details of the system, this wouldn't match your expectation, right? You'd, you'd, expect, have, you'd expect this exactly instead. The opposite of what you would be expecting. So it's, just, it's a good example where research is important and you don't just blanketly apply this thing to just whatever. Exactly, and here's the really cool thing, that in the same study, although in the supplement, as if, as, as if it wasn't an important thing, they studied these same species after queen removal. So after queen removal, you no longer have this incentive for policing in favor of the queen's eggs, and what they got was this. They got the naive expectation. It's no longer, should you allow your sisters to reproduce or not? It's now a question of, should I reproduce instead of my sisters? Uh, and it changes the, the, the relationship dramatically. So this, this one is more intuitive in the sense that if relatedness uh, is high, what we have here is percentage of reproductive workers, you should be more willing to be a helper, lower percentage of reproductive workers. They're still uh, equally unrelated. Their relatedness is still low, but more of them start laying eggs. But the policing then goes down as well for them? Well, they, they, they no longer can police in favor of the queen's eggs, right? And that's the reason, that's the, the reason that we hypothesize that they're doing it. Now their choice is, should I lay an egg, which is related by one half to me, or should I rear an egg of a, or should I rear a nephew who's related by three-eighths instead? And then the observation is they don't police. That's right. Yeah. So, so normally, one percent or fewer of honeybees are trying to reproduce. You take away the queen, and it goes up to close to forty percent. Right. And again, normally, a couple of graphs ago, normally in bees, there's a ton of policing, very effective. And in this situation, that policing is the incentive for policing goes away. They don't police, and lots of females reproduce. You know why the, the policing? Uh, would you say that that, that changes the cost of the? Uh, I mean, it, so if you have policing, right, uh, your relatedness is the same. Uh, it's changing basically. So if you have policing, if you if you uh, if you're looking at what altruism is, it's not reproducing. Okay, so policing's there, and you reproduce. Somebody's going to kill the egg, right? So so there's less. It's either there's a little more of a. Now if the queen is sitting there beating you down if you reproduce then that could be seen as like a cost uh, relative to what you would do otherwise. The cost altruism relative, or you could put it in the benefit, but uh, it's kind of, uh, it's changing. It gets them. messy, and it changes other things too. So for example, if you police, if you eat your worker, the worker's egg, there's no guarantee the queen is going to lay a male in that cell. She might lay another female, and, uh, but that's okay for you too, actually. So. I know that we know a little bit about um, the chemical substances that queens produce that suppress uh, worker reproduction. Do, we, do you know if it's known if those are the same substances that encourage worker policing? I don't know. That's, <coughs> I would say it's not unlikely. It's a good hypothesis, yeah. yeah. Can you explain why they chose to put this data on a linear scale yeah. I don't know just just to make it more the relationship I don't have any prediction whether it would be logarithmic or not because so many things are changing but um, I mean if I put them on the same plot they would look extremely they'd look funny one, one would be this more, one would look like uh, 
I mean, it's not even clear to me some of these points wouldn't be in the same place. Like, where was Polisti's uh, Chinensis? Uh, want, want to go back? See, that's, that, that hasn't changed its position very much, right? It's that one, that one species, Polisti's Chinensis. You mean it's near 0.25 either way? Yeah, you're right. It's just that so they're not, they presented they're not paying it. So deceptive. But you would still get... Whichever way you did it, you get an increasing function in one case and decreasing in the other, I think. But well, yeah, but yeah it, it would have like been exponential. Maybe that's why they stuck it in the supplement because they didn't want people to compare <laughs> too closely. Not a uh, A related question here. So we talk about workers reproducing. Normally, they can only reproduce males. Another question is, should I become a queen or should I become a worker? And in many species, you don't really have that choice. They've evolved to the point where the choice is being made for you. So in honeybees, for example. Queens are reared in special large cells with special, uh, special food. And a worker simply cannot become a morphological queen. She's not provided with the right stuff. So workers grow in these kinds of cells, queens in these kinds of cells. So it's been taken out of her, uh, uh, her range of options, really. She could become a slightly reproductivized worker, but not a real queen. Whereas in some of the stingless bees, I showed you some stingless bee stuff earlier, in the genus Melipina and stingless bees, um, queens and workers are reared in equal sized cells and, and given the same kind of food. And effectively, that puts the choice of whether to become a queen or a worker, if they are morphologically distinct in the species, in the hands of the developing female larva herself. And uh, what you find is that a lot of them, uh, you can tell by eye size, uh, at this stage, a lot of them opt to become queens. And that's really interesting because uh, uh, this species doesn't need any more queens than this species. They're both swarming species where they need a new queen once in a while when the colony splits. And yet these guys are producing a whole bunch of queens, each one kind of trying to, taking the gamble that maybe she's going to be the lucky one. Uh, you know, it's worth giving up the work she would do to get for, the, for the small chance that she might become a queen. A, a successful queen. Uh, so here is a sort of size uh, a distribution of queens and workers in this species. They don't differ uh, in dry weight, and a lot of them, some, something like 15%, if I remember, become uh, queens. And that's a big cost, potentially a big cost to the colony. You're wasting 15% of your resources when you, you only need one queen once in a while. You've got dozens or hundreds of queens instead. And it's a sort of similar choice to the one I, I, sh I showed you before. Uh, the per percentage coming out to be reproductive, these, this is the worker graph I showed you before, but if we consider it a similar issue, they're coming out in a similar place. The relatedness is like this, and uh, they're coming out at about 15%. So when you have dozens and hundreds of potential queens, they, they're, they're fighting it out? They don't fight. Pretty much they try to hide, but workers kill them. So here's a decapitated queen right here. So that, that's one thing that shows it's really waste. They produce these things, and then they just bump them off because they're, they're a drain on the colony. But the uber queen has some pheromones that prevent the, the death? The, the worker, you, oh, you mean when she is born? Yeah. So the easiest way to take over is if the old queen dies, then you've got a situation where the young queen can come up. Or if the old queen weakens such that she's not secreting as much pheromone as she used to, the workers say, off with the old queen, let's get a new one. But even so, it's only going to be one of those new ones that succeeds at it. 
So it's a sort of it's a sort of tragedy of the commons type situation in social insects, even though they are related, and that mitigates the tragedy of the commons to a certain extent. It's it's better to be a queen than to be a worker. Well, liberty, egalitarian fraternity requires to behead Marie Antoinette. Yeah, and the king. <laughs> okay, at least a little bit about multicellularity. Um, so. I think mo many of the ideas about the major transitions came out of this work in social insects over the years, and we're transplanting them and modifying them as time goes on to some of the other major transitions. And this is sort of the one that's mo most directly similar because it's a fraternal major transition where relatedness matters, and I'm going to argue it matters a lot. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's the subject of this conference. So the key distinction I want to make here is one that's been made already. It's between multicellular organisms that start out from a single cell, we call it a single cell bottleneck, and they divide, remaining attached to each other generally. And as a result, the relatedness of those cells is one in the absence of mutation. Versus aggregative development, where you've got a bunch of cells dispersed over the environment, and at some point they come together to form a multicellular organism. And their relatedness is, we don't know, we'd have to estimate it. It's not going to be one necessarily. It could be, could be very low in principle. Most of the organisms, multicellular organisms, we know are like this. And perhaps there's an obvious reason for that. It's important to be highly related. Uh, one where it's not quite like that is dictyostelium, and that's the reason we study it. We're interested in not just cooperation, but also the conflicts that have to be overcome. And so with the aggregative uh, development of dictyostelium, even though we found out in the wild they're mixing only to a fairly minor extent, we can do it in the lab and, and simulate all kinds of interesting things. Mixococcus is similar or different? Or it's, it's similar. It has a similar cycle. It doesn't do anything like this to produce an obvious sacrificial structure. Uh, it is true that like 99% of the cells die, but we don't fully understand why yet. There, there's, presumably they're providing something for the success, successful spores, but I don't think that's been worked out. I mean, the structures that stick up have all of them. You know, they, they yeah, it's like a, in some species it's just a blob. In other ones it might be a bit of a stalk and then a widening, but I think that stalk cells are still you know, viable, if you, if you want to call it a stalk. It's a very similar life cycle, but with a few, few differences. And of course, they're prokaryotes instead of eukaryotes. So in this cartoon, might make them simpler. And so yeah, yeah. So in this cartoon, the segregation of the yellow and the slug is punitive anterior that ends up being in the middle. It migrates to the middle. Um, as the this is the the stalk as it's being formed, and so the anterior becomes this should be really be facing that direction. I think okay. Owen switched around the slide to do that at one point. Um, yeah, the anterior becomes the stalk. Which is interesting because it seems like the anterior is leading everything. You know, it's this, you know. Um, there, so so the, there's the larger question of whether conflict is important. And, and uh, I don't know how many of you have read this book by Leo Buss. It, it was an important forerunner, I think, of, of the Maynard Smith and Sothmari book on the major transitions, expressing many of the similar, many similar ideas, although the major transition he focused on was multicellularity, and he was trying to import some of the ideas about competition and conflict, but didn't think very much about the single cell bottleneck. Um, but he suggested that in order to understand the development of modern multicellular organisms, such as metazoans, you had to understand 
at least the history of conflict in, in those lineages. So you'd have to evolve policing of cells that replicated too fast, for example. Uh, you might understand some of the current morphological movements in embryos as relics of a past history of trying to get in the germline. Um, you might see some of the inductions of other cells to form certain somatic tissues as a kind of policing. You become a liver cell, don't become a reproductive cell. And then he talks about the evolution of germline sequestration, which is another device for controlling uh, selfishness. So all of these would be important issues under aggregative development because you've got different clones in there. It's not obvious that they are uh, when there's a single cell bottleneck because that all the cells in that organism are descended from a single cell related essentially by one. So where's the conflict? So here's a lineage of cells forming a multicellular organism that I've just drawn as a sort of flat plate here, starting from a single cell through several generations, all bear the same genotype. So where's the potential for conflict? Why do you need to control it at all? Well, really, this isn't necessarily exactly one if you get a mutation during the development of that. So if this is a mutation to reproduce a little bit faster and end up with eight cells in an area where you would have had four, well, that has gained a, 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 an advantage. And so you do need to think at least a little bit about these issues. On the other hand, and this is the, the part that uh, Bus didn't think through far enough, uh, when this guy comes to reproduce, okay, you've gotten this selfish advantage, you've got all these, we're assuming an undifferentiated organism here where these are all potentially propagules at the end. The blue propagules give rise to this kind of guy, and the red selfish propagules give rise to an entirely red selfish uh, uh, kind of thing. And so you've gotten one generation of, I've drawn this wrong actually, I think, but let's go ahead. One generation of within individual advantage, and I've drawn it as if you get one here too, but there's nobody, there's no cooperators to beat out here. I, sh I should have just drawn all these red looking like that. I just caught that as I was, as I was going along. Um, so anyway, Rick Michaud has taken this kind of thinking farther to see if maybe there really was something to what Leo Buss was talking about in spite of the single cell bottleneck. And so he modeled it based on a mutation rate mu per, per cell generation, a replication advantage B per cell generation, and an organismal advantage to this guy because he's assuming this one, would, because of the selfish mutation, would be doing worse than this guy. And here's some of the, a graph of some of the results that he got. What this shows is how large an organismal benefit B is required to overcome, let's say, a 5% self advantage per cell generation. If you have a mutant, advan mutant that now reproduces 5% faster per cell generation, uh, how far could it spread in the face of uh, organismal advantages or disadvantages? And it depends. Um, if the mutation rate is very high, 10 to the minus third is an extremely high mutation rate, or if the number of cell generations is very large, then um, almost any selfish replicating mutant you know, with a 5% advantage could spread, uh, unless it had a very, very large effect on the organismal benefit, a negative effect on the organism benefit. On the other hand, at the origin of multicellularity, when things were presumably slow, a small number of cell, cell generations, maybe in this neighborhood, not much effect there, perhaps. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit hard to say. We need to know something more about mutation rates. We need to know about you know, what organisms were like when they first evolved multicellularity and so forth. Um, 
But the take home message is that for cell division replicators, it's something we should think about. This assumes that the mutation rate is just relevant to the origin of the cell, which is, has no other effect on fitness. It's affecting also the organismal benefit. So you get a selfish advantage. It should really be a cost, I guess. And, um, so what would that be? So if you replicate too fast, you're screwing up the development of your organism, something like that. The cancer, for example. But in this case, we're assuming they're transmissible through generations, the genes at least. Okay. On the other hand, uh, Buss's other arguments, most of them weren't for, so, so the power of that is that even though you're only getting a single multicellular generation of benefits from your replicative mutant and then your entire cheater or entire non-cheater organisms, the power comes from the fact that during that one time you get many cell generations to accrete your, your uh, reproductive advantage. But many of the phenomena that Buss was talking about involved sort of mutants that weren't, weren't like that. There were mutants that would exert an effect at a particular time. So if, for example, uh, as you're dividing, a cell detects at the 10th division that it looks like it's, it's sensing the chemicals around it and it senses, oh, it's going to be a liver cell. And a mutation might occur which says, if I sense that stuff that I'm going to be a liver cell, move over here and maybe you become a germline cell instead. It would be a single time effect during development. And if Buss's arguments about competition structuring the nature of development are correct, those are the kinds of things that have to occur. And those are much weaker because they're not accreting, you know, the advantage is not accumulating over many cell generations. It's happening at one point. So again, here's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Let's assume now we've got an organism at the end point which is, has a somatic region here that does something that's good for the other cells. So these guys aren't going to reproduce, but they're enhancing the reproduction of these cells. And we're going to ask what happened if you've got a cheater mutant that wants to avoid that somatic, that liver region or whatever it is. So somatic cells here, cheater mutant here. Bad use of color because the red is close to this and the effect of this cheater is going to be able to turn it into a, a reproducer instead. I should have made it a different shade of blue. So its effect is to go to its neighboring cell, knock out, and sort of take its place uh, so that instead of going partly into the soma, it's producing reproductive cells instead. It would gain a short-term advantage from that. However, there could be a cost to the organism both because it's reduced the size of the soma, and it may also have reduced the number of reproductive propagules that are produced. So would that kind of thing spread? This would be a cheater, yeah, it was destined for somatic cells, and it's moved over to get into germline. What happened the other way? What happened the somatic cells become germline-like? Oh, no, I think this is, well, let's, let's go back. So this guy was going to go into, at least partially into soma. Shoot, going the wrong way. So, yeah, he was destined for soma and moved over to germline. So these single time effects have the same issue that the other ones did, that in the next generation, the blue cells give, give rise to entirely blue cell things with a proper soma. The red cell things would give rise to entirely red cell things that have the improper soma and therefore they'd suffer 
uh, a reproductive disadvantage, 26 propagules here, 24 in this particular example, but it could be anything. And the problem is that here, you get this one generation of within organism advantage, and then every generation afterwards you're being selected against at the group level. So hard thing to evolve, but you, you can't ask whether it will or not. Um, another issue that makes it even harder is that the pool of mutants that occur that can experience that one-time effect is modest. So this is the cell that senses where it is and that it's likely to go into soma and can have the opportunity of going and displacing this other one. I call it the action cell. Um, so if the mutation occurs in, in the formation of this cell, that's fine. If it occurs here, that's fine because the mutation will be present there. And if it occurs here, that's fine, it'll be present. But if it occurs on any of these lateral lineages, the mutation would not express itself. It doesn't get the one generation advantage. And if it occurs in any of these later things, it's not in the proper position to exert its effect. So there's a, depending upon which mutation it is and what it's doing, there's a restricted set of uh, positions in the developing embryo that would allow it to express its mutant advantage. So whatever the, muta the natural mutation rate is, the effective mutation rate for getting that advantage is, can be much smaller. So uh, I'm going to show you just a little bit of, of crude math to express this idea. Uh, organism with uh, cell generations indicated by D up to a maximum of big D for the total time of development, creating the organism at the end. So we got, uh, let's let E be the time of expression. So E would be the one, two, third generation in this case. That's expression of the action cell. And E, which is going to drop out as the number of cells at time D, E sub D is the fraction of the cells at a given time that can express the trait. So here, half of the cells, if they got the mutation, could eventually express the trait. Here, a quarter of the cells. Down here, none of the cells, and so forth. And SD is the selection coefficient when it is expressed. Probably doesn't actually need to have the D subscript there. It could be a constant since it's being expressed at only one time. So, NB was the mutation rate per cell division. So the within organism selection would look something like this. It depends on a mutation occurring to start with, and then summing over all the division times, you ask what is the selective advantage over the effectively the mean fitness uh, up to the time of expression, and then after the time of expression, none of the mutants get the selective advantage because they're too late anyway. Another way of saying that is that ED is zero for all these. If you overlay this into some, with some kind of spatial structure, which is surely relevant, yep. does it depend on whether it's a one-dimensional spatial I think it would, and it would make some of these things depend on each other, probably, instead of being constants, yeah. So this is just giving a very crude idea. Uh, yes. Yeah, but not this organism I'm talking about, not this guy here, where there is this soma here. And what we're in this particular application, I'm asking whether a mute, mutation that is expressed here that avoids the soma will be favored. But yeah, you could do a sim, similar analysis like this, asking about an undifferentiated soma. Would a mutation that favored making soma 
be favored? That might be the more interesting question to ask. Sorry? Uh, for this question, it's going to give us the answer no. For the other one, why? Well, this—if you create a soma and these are genetically identical to these guys, and you make more of these guys, it, it, it depends upon giving an advantage to these guys, yeah, right? This, uh, I, I'm seeing this is connecting to something you said in an earlier talk, and maybe it's something we should get together about. Yeah. Because again, the issue is if you, if you have a if you have a predefined distinction between fully reproductive, fully not reproductive cells, that this works. But if you have try to have a continuous variation of reproductive ability in cells, it doesn't work. You don't well, get. Well, why does it have a continuous? Why couldn't you have a a reproduction that says don't reproduce, instead do something else? Yeah, I think you could find one, but I'm not a mechanist, mechanistic biologist. So uh, anyway, that's the. I'm going to ignore this term simply because it's purely mutational. It's there and it's real, but it doesn't involve selection, and that one can be ignored because it's tiny. And so we're left with this term, where the the essence is how many mutations you're getting, the time of expression, and uh, sort of the fraction of mutations that can express it, and the advantage they get. And you have to embed that within a larger selection equation. This is what we got before for within organism selection. Uh, Q is the proportion of non-cheaters in the population. You can only get mutation from non-cheaters to cheaters. So that's the 1 minus Q here. And this is a standard organismal selection equation with the genetic variance, the selection coefficient big S on the organism as a whole, and the average fitness of organisms as a whole. Just like a summation over now you make that approximation, and don't you get the fact that well, the E is somehow coming from the sum from D equals 1 to the capital D? Yes. Uh, yeah, that should, be, that should be a D, I think. You're right. I changed this in the, last, okay. in the last bit. I sort of had a hybrid equation here that I needed to yeah. fix something in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. So a total selection looks like that. And this is a within-between group selection type equation with a little bit of mutation thrown in. And here's a surface that shows you a similar question to what we asked before. How large would this within selection bit, which incorporates both the selection intensity and the probability that the mutation will be expressed, how large, and that should have a bar over it like this, how large uh, does that have to be to fix a selfish mutant when it imposes a 5% cost on the organism? And you can see, again, the mutation rate has to be quite high uh, to get anywhere, again, we've got log mutation rate here. We've got uh, the expression time here. So later, the time of expression has that sort of effect. Um, this is a much more kind of stringent condition than we saw before for getting the evolution of, of for selfish mutants to be favored. And it's because they're only having that one time effect and because only a minority of the cells can express the gene. It's a much less powerful effect than the replicative one. Uh, that Rick Michaud has modeled. So I'm having a hard time with the mutation rate. So your mutation rate is just sort of the rate of this odd cell, right? It's the rate of mutation from a cooperator to a gene which would have the cheating effect if it were in that right cell. So the mutation can happen anywhere, but it's only going to get a reproductive advantage if it happens in the right lineage. 
I'm just having a hard time understanding this because of the high dump mutation rate, you're going to have all kinds of other problems, probably somatic mutations. Yep, I'm not, I'm not thinking about those in this model. That's right. Yeah, you got cancers and all kinds of things to worry about. So here, here's an example and a kind of weird one. We, we know some of the parameters for our dictyostelium system. Now, dictyostelium has aggregative development, so it's not exactly like the single cell bottleneck case that I've been talking about. But we can ask if we started a dicti, dicti clones from a single cell and allowed them to grow up, grow up to a certain size, that's this axis number of cell divisions, where this would be roughly the size of a normal dicti fruiting body, not that many cell divisions, and this would be a great blue whale. I'm, I'm not modeling great blue whales here. I'm asking if a single dicti cell grew in a clone to the size of a great blue whale, what would be the effect of cheater mutations? And the kind of cheater mutation that we've studied, Joan talked about already, it gets a selective advantage. It acts at the end of development. It's a selective advantage of about 0.25 by avoiding the stock. 25% of the cells, it doesn't do that. And if it's alone, has a selective disadvantage of minus one. It takes away the entire fitness of the organism. Uh, so that's what's modeled by this uh, uh, dark line here. And you can see that for any reasonable number of cell divisions, it just doesn't have uh, very much force. And the force that it does have, incidentally, look at this third line here, we've taken away, no, look at the top line, we've taken away the within individual selection we can see that most of what's going on here is pure mutation pressure and not individual selection at all. So mutation is something you've got to control. Um, and in this case, for these parameters, the within individual selection doesn't add much to that because each mutation only gets one little bout. And, and even some mutations don't get that. Although in this particular model, I think we allowed them all to. Uh, if, however, the selective disadvantage to the organism of a whole was a lot, a lot smaller, then yeah, then you can start getting some effects, um, but uh, only at large organism sizes. And if you run this model, this simplified model, to a very, very large number of cell divisions, the cheaters just completely take over, or is there some? Uh, well, I guess this is as far as I plotted it. Yeah. Um, some back pressure that you reach some yes. I mean, these guys are going off, you know, they're heading off the, they're heading off the charts, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Anyway, I, I think the take home message from this, although it's not completely clear uh, on Leo Buss's questions, uh, you know, in multicellular organisms with a single cell bottleneck, will there, should, might there be policing a faster replication? I think Michaud's re results suggest that there might be, because they get many, you know, sort of reproductive advantages during their single bout of, of uh, within organism selection. Are there going to be more genetic movements to get into a better position? I think probably not, particularly in the early evolution of multicellular when things are small. These effects are strongest when there are lots and lots of cell divisions. Uh, likewise. Uh, do we think that induction of other cells to perform somatic functions is a policing type thing? I think not. I just think it's an evolution of, you know, group structure kind of thing, uh, a, a special form of altruism. Uh, evolution of controls like germline sequestration. Well, some controls I think not, but germline sequestration, generally I'd say no, except that germline sequestration also has the effect of reducing the number of 
potentially selfish replicative mutants that can get into the next generation. So yeah, maybe something there. And I have another place I can go, but I think it's probably worth stopping here and open it up for questions. Well, yes, there's certainly morph morphogenetic movements, and there are movements by which some cells end up in the germline. There are other movements by which some cells end up in somatic tissue. And I think, I think competition is probably not the reason. Um, I think it's, it's just altruism. They're closely related, so it's easy for a cell, a mutation that causes a cell to take itself out of the germline and do something useful somatically can be favored simply because it's related to the other cells. It doesn't have to be forced into that necessarily. So it's a big difference between, if, if I'm right in this analysis, it's a big difference between this form of multicellularity from single cell bottlenecks and the social insects. They have sort of similar criteria, similar uh, numbers that need to be satisfied for Hamilton's rule to favor cooperation. But once that's favored, you can still have lots of conflicts in social insects, but you don't have as many in multicellular organisms. which I view as, kind of, as kind of partial errors, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's funny that uh, Hamilton's error actually helped in the acceptance of his theory, and Buss's error almost instantly uh, did not. And it was the same guy that was responsible, Maynard Smith, for both of them. So Maynard Smith uh, reviewed Hamilton's paper and said, oh, well, these other guys don't want to accept it, but this half of Dipway thing seems interesting, so let's, let's go ahead and, yeah. Yeah. Except that's cool. And he reviewed Buss's thing and basically said, oh, well, uh, this germline sequestration thing doesn't make sense because of single cell following. <laughs> well, now, you know, it could hardly have helped, but lead to, to help lead to Maynard Smith and Sasmari's book later. That many of the issues are yeah, similar. So, I mean, to me, Buss's thing is interesting because he, he kind of drew attention to, well, you have these transitions in the ability to evolve at new levels and hierarchical organization, these, all these different life cycles and everything. So, and Hamilton's thing, obviously, if you read his original paper, is a lot more than, he didn't focus, he didn't harp on haplodiploidy that much. He was talking about it's there, but all yeah. sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. Well, uh, there are no other questions. Uh, why don't we can discuss over cookies and tea in 15 minutes. So. Right, to get the Let's cookies. Thank I actually have to go somewhere else, but I'll okay. be happy to discuss with okay. anybody That's tomorrow and, the, and in the future. Okay. Or tonight. <laughs> over tacos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget the group dinner tonight at La Super Reef.